Hello and welcome to another edition of The More the Merrier with Donna G. Coming up on today's show, the focus again is the Toronto International Film Festival. But let me just get some housekeeping out of the way. My socials, TMTM with Donna G on Instagram and Facebook. Also, you can reach me via the CIUT website www.ciut.fm. And I always have at least one or so of the latest shows listed there. For more of an archive of my show, you can go to my Instagram and click on the link in bio. And again, the Instagram is at TMTM with Donna G, just the letter G. So what's on today's show? Well, two from the Toronto International Film Festival, or TIFF. The second interview during this hour will be with Sarah Margareta Oskell, and it's called The Tundra Within Me. And it is a Sami film, and the Sami are the indigenous people in Scandinavia. And Sarah Margareta Oskell It's her first film making its debut at the festival. She was born in Norway. She's an actor, writer, and director, and she has a PhD in performing arts from Oslo National Academy. And this is her first feature, The Tundra Within Me, and I love the landscape, her directing, the plot, so stay tuned for that. Uh, Coming up first, though, is my interview with Hannah Slack, And Hannah is not a first-time director. She's a multimedia artist and an author. Her filmography includes fiction features, documentaries, and experimental shorts. Her last fiction film, The Minor, was the official Slovenian entry for the 2018 Academy Awards. And Not A Word is her latest Film. The description by TIFF programmer Dorota Lek reads as follows. On a barren island, a mother and son confront years of silence and misunderstandings in writer-director Hannah Slack's formidable fourth feature film starring Marin Eckert, scored by Amélie Legrand and shot by Claire Maton. In our discussion, we t- not only talk about the plot of the film, we also talk about her cast and crew. Here now is that interview. You're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. This is Donna G at the Toronto International Film Festival. And with me is director and screenwriter Hannah Slack to talk about her film, Not a Word. Hannah, welcome to CIUT. Welcome to Toronto. Welcome to the festival. Thank you, Donna. Thank you. So your film, Not a Word, I enjoyed very much. You also wrote it, as I mentioned. Um, Where did the idea come from for the script? I think that um, the the idea for the film has a lot to do with the notion of what happens when you're not allowed or not given the space and time to mourn. That's something, it's a topic that I've been coming back in my films. My, My previous film, The Minor, which was a Slovenian um, Academy Awards entry in 2017, it was very much about um, the same kind of topic, but in a societal environment. So it was more of a political film, let's say. And this time it's a very intimate film. It's a film about an intimate relationship between a mother and a son and a kind of communication breakdown between the two. And then on top of it, there is this, um, there is this thing 
that he's going through because he's deeply affected by a violent death of a child from his school who was not a close friend, was not in his class, but is still he is very much traumatized by that and he's not, not, he doesn't really know how to vocalize that. So he's suppressing this trauma and um, he's not finding the moment to mourn that death. And, and for me it's interesting to see how people who walk around with this kind of unsolved or, or maybe not unsolved traumas but just mm, problems which they cannot vocalize or there is no exit for that emotion that somehow we tend to interpret their behavior as if they are developing some kind of neurotic or violent or some we start to feel that something's wrong with them and that makes it even more difficult for them to vocalize whatever they're going through but he also this young man also has parents who are not connected to him so he has no outlet it's for them, uh, they're a family attached to their telephones. Mm. Um, was that um, a message that you also wanted to bring to the film? Well, I, I don't know if I know, to be honest, any family who's not attached to their telephones. <laughs> you know, sure. it's like, um, but um, I think one of the things is that I'm trying to talk about in the film is also I noticed that we are moving from a culture of dialogue towards a culture of monologue where everybody has stuff to say and they know what they want to say and they're quite skilled at saying what they want to say but we're losing the skill to listen. So we're losing a skill to really engage in a conversation because we are, we're not anymore engaging in conversations, we're just in a sequence of monologue. So I tell my monologue then you reply with your monologue, but we're not really in a dialogue. So I was um, thinking, yeah, how does this happen? How do we lose the ability to talk to each other, really? So this is something that I think is also um, a process that it's um, interesting to watch this kind of a process in a relationship which is so dynamic as a um, um, parent-child relationship. All the, the relationships are dynamic, they're changing, you know, we're all uh, on a journey together through a changing relationship but with children it's especially so because they change faster so if you don't like pe press the refresh button <laughs> every now yeah. and then to you know to kind of check if you're still on the same level of communication where you can communicate with them they're growing up so the language that that kind of was a common language maybe two or three years ago is no longer a valid common language you have to reinvent the language to talk to to them and this is a, a, a family where um, the father is pretty much absent um, and the mother has not pressed the refresh button for much too long. So they don't have, the, the mother and the son, they've lost the common language. They don't have a, a, a functional interface anymore through which they could communicate with each other. It's interesting that she is a conductor of an orchestra and she's in charge of so many people and trying to communicate through music, but she can't communicate with her son. Um, there is a scene in particular that frustrated me in a good way because it, it made the film work for me, where their son is, is on a bed, the parents are at the foot of the bed, there's a cracked phone, his phone, a telephone goes off, and they both check the phone, 
and I'm thinking your your son needs you. Look at your son. Talk mm-hmm. to your son. Um, tell me about writing that scene. Yeah, I think I'm I'm a, I'm a parent as well, and I notice how um, you know how how when we we all have to work, right? And work has been invading our private space, our private lives, our private times, our families, everything. It has good and bad aspects. The, the fact that we can work from home or that you know, our working hours are kind of becoming more and more flexible, it's good and it's bad, both. So what I've been noticing is that um, when, I, when, I, when I look at my phone, you know, and I engage with whatever is there, I need, to, I need to answer, it's urgent, whatever, that I lose the feeling for the real time in space where I am with maybe someone else, with my son or a friend even. And they, they, like, I suddenly realized, I looked at this situation from outside and I saw this person who just disappears, as if you disappear from space and time because you're engaged with whatever content is in your phone and you have no idea how long this takes, you know, because your, your mind is occupied and this person next to you is just sitting there and waiting and for them this time has a completely different value because it's, it's waiting for you to, to reappear in their lives. And it's something that I've been noticing in my own life but I just kind of observe it everywhere you know you see like people going for lunch together and they have their phones with them and they're like engaging in a lively conversation and suddenly one of them is gone and the other one is gone and like for 10 minutes nobody says a word and then suddenly somebody puts the phone back down again and they're back you know they're back in this conversation as if nothing happened but if you have a kid who doesn't have a phone you know who can't have this kind of (laughs) escape to another world option he's just being there alone waiting for you to to kind of tune back in. And then, as you said, the, the child in the, in the film um, is grieving. We're like the mother. We need to figure out this mystery as to what is going on mm-hmm. uh, with the son, which makes for sort of um, a mystery mm-hmm. aspect yeah. to the film as, yeah. to, as to what has happened. Now, in the film, the mother decides to uh, go to a village uh, with the son. Tell me about this village that they go to. Well, it's it's less a village. It's more like a, a summer house they have um, on an island in the west of France on the Atlantic coast. And I suppose it's like wonderful place to be. It's a house on a beach, you know, a wonderful place to be at in summer. But now it's winter, and it's not wonderful in winter. They're really um, exposed to each other. Uh, there, they're alone. Nobody's there. No tourists. No, no other vacationers. And it's pretty um, empty. And they're very much facing each other in this. And so, facing each other. And there is no reception. So the phone's off. You know. So suddenly they are in this space and time, facing each other and facing this broken interface and their own inability to communicate with one another. And I think as, as when you say mystery, I really like working with suspense. Uh, it's an art house film, but I like to bring elements of genre into art house cinema. I'm not the only filmmaker who likes to do that. There's a lot of us in Europe, in um, Asia especially. And so I like to, wor- like to work with elements of suspense, of thriller and so on. And I think my filmmaking is speaking to an audience who likes to think 
while they watch a film. You know, they're like for me, there are like two kinds of films. I'm, I'm sure that everybody will disagree that there are 17 or something. But let's say, <laughs> let's say, you know, for the sake of this conversation, there's two basically kinds of films for me as an audience. Is the, the kind of films that take me for a ride. I can just, you know, fasten my seatbelt, relax, and they take me for a ride and bring me out to the other side and they tell me exactly what to think, how to feel, when to laugh, when to be sad and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to give up my will to decide what to do and to just go with the flow. And then there's this other kind of films which create a space in which they invite me with my own particular life experience to complete the story and to search for clues to complete the story with my with with my own identity with my own personal experience as a as a as a as a human and i think this is the kind of cinema that i like to make so i like to make a cinema that doesn't give you answers and doesn't exactly tell you where to look and what to feel but la rather um brings questions questions that to that you can uh, take home with you as, as well and this is the way i like to work with my actors as well i don't want them to be always showing the audience what the character is going through exactly i want them to make it possible for the audience to ask themselves what is this person going through what what is what is she doing there what's on her mind did you screen test your lead actress and the young man who plays her son? Did you screen test them together? Yes, I did. I mean, I didn't have to screen test Maren, to Maren Eggert, the main uh, actress, to, to decide that I want to work with her. I, w I knew I wanted to work with her. She's, she's an amazing, she's a star in Germany. She's an amazing actress. I know her from films. I know her from the theater. I love uh, her quality of acting and her humanity that she brings to the to the screen but i did need to see them together before i decided who will be the son because there has to be there had to be some kind of chemistry between them some kind of a you have to also believe that they are mother and son and this is not only about the way they look it's like little you know um things that are almost subconscious that, that make us recognize people from the same family even if they don't look much mm -hmm. like each other. So yeah, we did, we did um, do a test screening of them, both of them being together and we also, I, I like to work with my actors a lot through body work. I really believe in the body. I don't believe in psychological methods and things like that. I work through the body. I believe the body knows. The body knows the emotion. The body knows the thought. The body uh, knows the memory. You know, the, it's in the body. So I try to create for my actors physical, corporal situations which translate into an emotional situation. So one of the things that we would do, for example, I would, um, in the rehearsing room, I would put them in two different rooms and, and um, tie, tie a rope between them. So they were holding each one of them, the end of this rope, but they weren't able to see each other or to hear each other. But they were able to, to they were connected through this rope and they were able to, to communicate through this rope, like an umbilical cord or something like this. And I really wanted them to connect physically because I think a mother and a child 
share a long history of physical connection by the time the child gets to adolescence, which is the time where they have to separate from, the, from their mothers. But the separation is difficult because before that was a connection. So we were working on, on creating this kind of physical connection between those two people who basically are strangers and just met to work. But we needed still to create some kind of a, some kind of a memory in the body of belonging together. The young actor that you chose has an amazing face for the screen in terms of communicating with his eyes. Is that why you chose him? I think for me, when I'm looking at which actors I want to work with, there are two things that I, I realize are immensely important. The eyes, definitely, but also the voice. You know, the first thing that I really noticed about Yona was his voice. For me, the sound, the voice, we were doing so much voice work. Just today, Aman Egat was telling somebody about how I was, um, <laughs> I was um, not forcing, but like asking everybody to do voice work all the time during this film. Because I think for me, um, I really believe the performance when I believe the pitch of the voice. When I, when I hear in the voice, that is the, the pitch which corresponds with this emotion or this state of mind and, and so on. And Yona has an amazing voice. He's a, he has a very beautiful, very um, phonogenic, as they say, voice. So I'm, I'm, and he has a great face, for sure. And, you know, and he's a great guy to work with. He's, he's, a, he's a wonderful person to work with. So I'm sure we'll hear of him. He, I think he has a big career ahead of him. The setting is gorgeous is beautiful um it's winter i know it's like you make winter look good even though i can i could sense you know the cold of them walking on the the hillside why did you choose that location well actually um my initial idea was to shoot in somewhere in scandinavia so to have them like live in Germany and then go to their holiday home somewhere in the north. And then my producer, my German producer, who is of uh, French descendants, he um, cunningly <laughs> arranged a writing residency for me on this island, Belle-Ile-en-Mer, which is an island in the Atlantic Ocean on the West French coast. And I was like, yeah, whatever, you know, I, I, like French island, really? <laughs> that's not that's not what I had in mind. He was like, yeah, just it's no, it's just a writing residency, you know. I don't have to, <laughs> no, just go there. And I said, okay, well, whatever, you know. I took my stuff, and I never wrote a word actually because I was only hiking al around. It was December. I was hiking around the island in like oversized fisherman's coat or something all the time it was it was just so breathtakingly beautiful and i know that this island in the summer is very popular with tourists it's a, it's a kind of a um, popular location for parisians to go to in summer but in winter there's almost nobody there and the presence of the spirits of nature there is so strong it's you know it's like a it's a, it's, I really did befriend the island, or maybe I was lucky that the island agrees to befriend me. But really, I, I think that it's somebody that I met in my life, this island, and who really is a very generous, or at least to me, turned out to be a very, very generous 
being and i have i have um i mean i really have a relationship with this island as a as an entity and it's it's just breathtakingly beautiful in winter because in winter there are so few humans around so everything is very uh, not i wouldn't say wild but free you know there's this kind of freedom of expression of the natural forces there's all this wind, the, the sky is changing all the time, the surface of the sea is changing all the time, there are huge waves and there's nothing. The tides, this is the, one of the parts of the world where there are the most, um, the highest differences between tides, you know? So we have like really high tide and then you have really low tide and it's almost like a desert. The water is gone, it's not there anymore. It's just, it's just breathtakingly wild and beautiful. How did you work with your cinematographer in capturing this wildness, the spirit of the island? Well, it's not the first time that Claire is shooting, was shooting in uh, Brittany. In the Could you say her last name, please? Claire Maton is, a, is an incredible French cinematographer, very well known. I think she has many fans probably also among your audience. Maybe they don't know her name because <clears throat> sometimes we don't remember cinematographers' names. So I'll mention some of the films that she made. Um, for example, a portrait of a young woman on fire. Wonderful, um, a masterpiece, really. And Spencer, probably some of um, your audiences will have seen. But also films uh, like Atlantique, a film by uh, Mati Diop, or... Um, Saint-Omer most recently it's a film by a French uh, filmmaker called Alice Diop w amazing films or a bit older films like um, um, A Stranger by the Lake an amazing film as well and I, I just love her cinematography you know I, I think I was her fan without even knowing that I'm her fan and when I was um, thinking about who to work with on this film um, I think for me it was really important that there that we can show the relationship between the body and the space. So the, the the human presence in the landscape but also in the city and to just like contrast the body and the space. And I think that's what I see in her work very much. So she's very visceral in her cinematography and then she has this something so special that nobody else in the world has this kind of view as she does and it was wonderful to work with her so we decided to really that we want to contrast the this um, the city landscape with this kind of controlled you know everything uh, sized down to the human scale everything is functional and then this natural landscape where we're just one small element within this 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 landscape uh, which is not created to please us it's just there and so we w really wanted to show this, this uncontrollable force of that natural landscape there. I want to ask you also about something that gets um, ignored very often, and that's the costuming, mm -hmm. because it plays a central role in the development, mm -hmm. of especially of the mother. Mm -hmm. You know, we see her in this white, urban, uh, expensive mm -hmm. clothes, yeah. and then she goes to the island wearing those clothes and then you know eventually we see a change mm -hmm. how did you develop that with mm -hmm. your costume designer 
Yeah, I'm so glad you asked this question because it's true that um, it, it's rarely, it's rarely. I don't know. Maybe people just assume that it's part of the actor's work to <laughs> change their clothes when it's appropriate. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, in fact, yes, uh, it's a very young and very talented German costume designer. Uh, her name is um, Laura Schäfler, who worked with us on this film. And yes, we really wanted to. We wanted to keep everything pretty much simple and minimalist. But we really wanted to show through this. Um, change in the costume, the change of the development of the character of the mother, because she comes to the island in her city clothes, right? He ha she has this very elegant um, beige coat, uh, which is very inappropriate in this landscape, actually, it doesn't work. But also, it's not, it's not even, it's like, um, it's like a cask to her, you know. It's not. It's like something that's that's also constraining her. It's like the role of this successful conductor. That is it's her armor. It's her armor. Yeah, and it's but it's at the same time it's her armor, but it's not an armor that she uses. To, you know, it doesn't protect her. It constrains her in a way. So there is a moment when she just like throws it away, and it's kind of liberating in the in the in the film. And um, yeah, and then there's this whole development, which is a development of her becoming more and more like the local people there on the island. It's very discreet, you know, through the yeah. film. So you hardly, I, I mean, nobody mentioned it until now. We do it very, very discreetly and piece, piece by piece. And then there's also a development that she's moving from this, which we called her color scale, you know, beige and so on, very dry kind of, um, He's, she's moving into his color scale, which is blue. So she's 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 coming from this very neutral, very blank kind of um, colors. She's moving into his into his blue, you know. Because and at the end, both of them are blue. And for this moment of of the, there is one shot in the film when they're sitting back to back to each other and everything is blue and they're blue as well. Nobody notices it. It's very discreet. But for this, our inspiration was Picasso Blue Period where she, he made some amazing portraits um, of, of people on dark blue background in dark blue clothes and their pale faces and dark hair. You know, it's just so beautiful. So we were like really aiming to get to this picture throughout the film slowly to, to because it's a picture of loss and sadness also in Picasso's um, work and it's just very very beautiful so th it was it, it definitely it's a it's a work of many artists and so there is the costume designer who, who who is you know doing such a great job slowly moving us from one place to another and at the same time of course there is the cinematographer who is accompanying this with light and with framing and with choosing the the colors as well so yeah and uh and the sound and the sound. Um, how was it <laughs> for your sound team um, I have like the most wonderful sound guy really I love him so much he's so sweet um I work with a um Slovenian sound recordist I made his uh, my previous film with him as well and like you know it's like my previous film we shot in the mine you know we were in the mine all the time in this film I'm I'm calling him and saying okay so we're making the next film it's on this island it's windy you know it's horribly windy it's it's it, it wind is like the worst thing for mics you know you can't work if there is wind it and there's sea you know you can hear the waves all the time no continuity of this you know it's just <laughs> 
you know, and he's like, oh, yeah, I'm coming, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like all excited about it. I know which mic, there's this new mic, I have to tell you about it. He said, don't tell me about it, I don't want to know, <laughs> just come. And he's just such an amazing guy. It's so good to work with him. He's so good, and he's always, always, always positive. Like, I remember one day we had wind machines on the set and the dialogue scene you know so you know it's it's impossible you can't shoot the dialogue scene while you're using wind machines because wind machines not only make wind they're also extremely loud their engines are like it's it's like a like like you know construction work on the street so it's forget it so i said to him yeah well it's i think it's going to be a bad day for sound today and he says to me you know what there's no bad day for sound. Wow, he loves his job. <laughs> he loves, he his, loves job his job. And he does such an incredible job. I love sound people. And then I had also an amazing post-production. Mention his, uh, his name, please. His name is Grega Schwabic. He's a Slovenian from Slovenia, where I originally come from. I live in Germany. I'm a German artist, but my family comes from Slovenia. I lived in Slovenia for a while, and I love to work with uh, people from Slovenia. They're so... They're all this kind of very versatile outdoor crew, you know, because they used to work in the Alps on, on, on films and stuff, and they're, they're just incredible. So Grega Schwabic is this amazing sound recordist. Um, he did such wonderful work on dialogue and everything. You know, in Europe, we rarely um, post-sync the, the dialogue. We usually use the original dialogue that we shoot on location. So we really need really good people on location to work with. And this is one of the best guys, I think, in the world. And I had amazing post-production crew as well who did such a great job on the sound design, which was so important in this film, because you know the film is called Not a Word, and there are some words in the film actually, <laughs> <laughs> but there is also music, and there is an amazing soundscape. In fact, so it's it's really a film that you have something to hear forward to if you're going to to watch this film. It really it really immerses you in a um, in in sounds because the profession of the main character. She's a she's a conductor, right? She's somebody. She's a musician. She's working with music, and I think all music um, originates in nature somehow. So I wanted to connect this great symphonic music, which is you know very elaborate, very artificial. I wanted to connect it to this natural sounds of the island, because I know that for Gustav Mahler. Um, it wasn't an island, it was the the Alps, the mountains. He he would go to the Alps a, a lot, and I think you can hear this natural soundscape in his music as well. I have a question which some viewers might find it problematic, and some viewers may just see it as natural. You have a young girl mm-hmm. in the film who... Um, I think, is it Down syndrome that she has? Yeah, she has Down syndrome. Right. Now, did you write that into the script, or is that something that just happened? No, no, I wrote it. I mean, you know, the reason why I wanted to have a person, a child, with, um, she she was, she was, she's not as young as she uh, looks, so she, um, Juliane Siebeke, she was 18 when we were shooting the film, but her role is uh, 15. So, um her character. So um, the reason why I wanted to have a child with a Down syndrome is that um, Lars, the main, the boy, he has a problem because he's not able to express his emotion and to express his needs. You know, he just, he like, he lost the, the ability or, or the channel to, to really express his emotions and his needs. And I think 
people who have Down syndrome, one thing we can learn from them is how to express emotion and how to express their needs. And this is like exactly the opposite of his problem. And I think she's the person that kind of starts the healing process in him, you know, because of her immediacy and her joyfulness and her naughtiness, actually, that, that she, she carries with her in the film. So I really, I really wanted to have a child or a, a young adult with a Down syndrome to, to oppose to his inability to express his emotions and to communicate his grief. And does the actress actually have Down syndrome? Oh yeah, yeah, she has Down syndrome. And did you um, audition many people for that role? Well, um, no. What happened is that I had um, a person looking for an actress with a Down syndrome. And there is in Berlin where I live, we have two different theater companies who um, are staging plays uh, acted and made by people with um, cognitive disabilities, uh, teenagers and grown-ups mostly. And so she was going to the performances and just you know speaking to them and so on. And what happened is that she met Juliane on one of those um, shows in the audience. So Juliana wasn't acting in the show. She came with her mom to see the show. And she just she was just blown away by this girl because she's so charismatic and she's so intelligent and just so lively and she's so lovely, you know. And oh. she actually it was her first role, but by now she has quite a career, let me tell you. So she did some television, she did some bigger roles in television and stuff and, and people just love her. She's she's twenty now, she's going to get married anytime soon. She's been living with her fiance for two years. And she's such a such an incredibly um yeah, intelligent and interesting and charismatic person and she's very, she's a, a very intuitive actress. Like she, she loves uh, to act, and she's doing such a great job. Also, thank you for um, treating her like any other actor, um, because and it's you know I shouldn't have to say that, but you know so often the, the person who's portraying someone with Down syndrome doesn't always have. Down syndrome. Mm. So thank you for leveling the playing field mm. for actors um, that have her cognitive um, abilities. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's um, well, it was it was just a, such a joy to work with her. Really, I, I w it wouldn't cross my mind to cast somebody who doesn't have a Down syndrome for role of somebody who has a Down syndrome. It really wouldn't cross my mind because they're so amazing people out there, so why would I cast somebody who has to pretend they have a Down syndrome? Come on. Like, if there's so many um, really interesting, as I told you, we have just, only in Berlin, we have two uh, theater um, companies who are, like, full of talented people yeah. doing amazing uh, art. You know, and I know that there's this, um, there's this, I was following it a little bit, there was this um, London-based initiative of, um, photographers making amazing um, photography art and modeling art with people who have Down syndrome. It was, it's just beautiful. It's just so 
I mean, uh, I don't know. I think there's a lot we can learn yeah. uh, from people who have a slightly different way of living in this world. It's, it's a lot we can learn. For a movie called Not a Word, the two of us definitely had a lot to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> Hannah, thank you so much. Thank you for so much, Jonah. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And that was my interview with Hannah Slack and her film Not a Word, Kind Wart was a world premiere at the recent Toronto International Film Festival. Hannah, as she said, is Slovenian-born, but lives in Germany. Curated by the people, for the people. CIUT 89.5 FM is the sound of your city. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The More the Merrier with Donna G. I can be found on socials at TMTM with Donna G on Instagram and Facebook. My Instagram has access to my archived shows, and you can also find me at www.ciut.fm, 1 to 2 p.m. every Sunday, and I usually have one or two podcasts there as well. The first interview was the Toronto International Film Festival platform feature by director Hannah Slack called Not a Word. This upcoming interview is with first-time feature director in the Discovery program, Sarah Margareta Oskel. Programmer Jason Ryle writes, Set amongst the reindeer herds of northern Scandinavia, a Sami artist returns to her hometown where she confronts her past demons and finds an unexpected new love. Here now is my interview about the tundra within me with Sarah Margareta Oskel. Sarah, welcome to CIUT, welcome to Toronto, welcome to the festival. Thank you so much. As I mentioned, you're part of the Discovery Program, which is dedicated to new or emerging uh, filmmakers. It's your first time here with a feature film at TIFF. Uh, what, is, what has that been like for you? Because you've had one screening so far. It has been amazing. Yesterday was the first screening, world premiere, and I just loved seeing the film again together with this wonderful audience. Because I could really feel that they enjoyed watching the film. So there was laughter, there was crying, and all kinds of emotions from the audience. Did you have a good question and answer session? Yeah, of course. I. They wanted me to explain yoik, tell more about the reindeer herding uh, lifestyle, and so on. But that's I'm so used to that, and I'm glad that I can bring some more information to the world. Well, they asked some of the same questions that I wanted to ask you. Am I right in thinking that um, Yoik is sort of a song that people sing for in praise of something or in remembrance of something? How would you define Yoik singing? Yoik is our traditional way of singing. We can use words or we can only use um, the melody. And uh, we yoik everything that we appreciate. We can yoik each other. 
We can enjoy uh, nature, mountains, lakes, rivers, and we yoik animals as well, reindeer, even the mosquito has its own yoik. So uh, it's a way of communicating with all beings, those we see and those we don't see. And uh, um, it has been forbidden also during, uh, yeah, when Christianity came to the Sami people because it was considered um, the devil's work. And, of course, joy casts its spirituality as well, because it connects us, as I said, to each other, to the nature, and to our ancestors. So it's a really good way of remembering, good way of communicating, a good way of uh, connecting. Is York singing, is it improvised, or are, they, are the songs known? Uh, the melody is known, but you can improvise with the lyrics. So it's like storytelling. So uh, you can improvise a little bit with the melody as well, but people have to recognize the melody, the yoik. So yeah, it's a way of storytelling. So you can add new stuff. And if you make really good phrases, um, then they will survive for hundreds of years. Oh, somebody else will use them and yeah. continue. Ah, how wonderful. That is a great way of keeping the culture alive. Yeah, so uh, we give it as a gift. So my per- I have two personal yokes. The one that I got from my godmother, uh, and I'm so glad in that yoke. And if somebody else is yoking me, for example, in the pub in my Sami home village, I really get... Uh, I feel that I'm liked really much. And appreciated. Appreciated as well. So we've been talking about the Sami culture through uh, the Yoik. But this film, The Tundra Within Me, is about a young woman who left her village, left being a reindeer herder to go to the city. I was a reindeer herder myself for 10 years. I was supposed to keep on the traditional lifestyle and the business that I inherited from my parents. But I have always had this dream of becoming a storyteller, an actor. And when my father passed away, being a female reindeer herder alone um, became too much for me. I couldn't bear that. So I made the biggest decision in my life. I decided to quit. So I did sell my herd, meaning that I don't have the same connection to the land, the community, and also that that I have taken away the possibility of my daughters to continue with that lifestyle. So the film is based upon my own fears, sorrow, grief, joy, and also uh, Lena character, the artist coming back and feeling not belonging to the community anymore, 
it's also something that I have been feeling a lot. So both uh, Mahta's dilemmas and Lena's dilemmas are somehow mine dilemmas. But the love story is made up. Okay. <laughs> You've introduced um, Mate. So tell my listeners who Mate is. Mm. Mate is the, the, the lead, the male lead. He's a reindeer herding, herding together with his mother and his uncle. They are a small group. And his mother is the manager who decides what to do. So Mahdi is hoping to become the leader one one day. And his mother has has somehow decided or she wants him to marry a neighborhood or a neighbor girl who is also a reindeer herder because that would make their business stronger. Connections, yeah, networking. So um, for that sake, it would be easier for Mahde continuing reindeer herding. So, and then when he falls in love with Lena, his life is totally changed. So we meet him, we follow him like being the young man wanting to follow his dreams, wanting to decide who to love and how to live his life, following him through that journey and becoming the man he wants to be and getting approval and trust from his mother. You mentioned your daughters. Do they know anything about reindeer herding at all? Uh, the elder does know more because when she, I think she was like almost ten when I quit. No, no, she was seven, six, seven when I when I quit. So the youngest one is not that connected because she was born after that I quit reindeer herding. So, but of course I've tried to teach them the things I know. I teach them handicraft, which is uh, important as well. Uh, but uh, they haven't had the chance to live the life that I has been living. Is it hard on the body or is it the hours that it takes to do the job? As a reindeer herder? Yeah. It's both. You know, it's in the Arctic areas. It's cold. You have to be outdoors. You are herding. They are not in a house, the reindeer. They're not in a fence. So you go and feed them. They are on the tundra. So uh, you have to know the tundra. You have to know where to have your reindeer at, uh, according to the weather, when it changes, according to neighbor herds. So it's like, um, and then we have the threats from the outside world. Reindeer herding demands a um, huge... Um, a huge area of land. Yeah, it, it, because it's nomadic. Yeah. And and then we have minings, then we have wind power industry, we have climate change now, we have predators, we have people wanting to build cottages, in grazing areas, so there are a lot of uh, threats wanting to use the land that is needed for the reindeer. So, so we are really connected to the land. Without the land, we cannot have reindeer, 
and the reindeer give us food, shelter, we make clothes of the fur, so it's really important. And all the knowledge which reindeer herders have, how to survive in this area. And reindeer is like the only animal that survives in that area and give us good food and, and clothing and yeah. everything. Yeah, it provides everything. Yeah, it provides everything. It's really amazing. Do you ever revisit reindeer farms and help out? Yeah, uh, lately, the, the late, yeah, not in the beginning. I couldn't do that because it was so hard. It was so hard to be in a, um, seeing the, 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 the herd and not seeing my own reindeer anymore because uh, every reindeer owner has its own identity brand mm -hmm. and it's on the reindeer's ear so mm -hmm. it's an individual brand mm -hmm. that was hard time. yeah but now making this film writing this going back to my brother's uh, areas because they are still doing reindeer herding and my nephews going there as a filmmaker now uh, and feeling they're, how to say, they were so willing to help us out to make this film. And it was good for me to be there in the, in the, in the area and be there as a filmmaker and knowing, okay, I did the right choice. After all, it was hard making that choice. And, that I, and I'm glad they are continuing. I'm glad my nephews are continuing. So... They will bring the knowledge. I was going to ask you where you shot. Um, what, when you did you develop the story first, and then ask your brothers, "Can I shoot here?" Yeah, because uh, you have to have a script. You have to have a good script to get funding. So uh, five years ago, we were like doing some research at my brother's. Uh, uh, areas and yeah, asking if it could be possible to do the filming there and they were positive so um, and I have been discussing is it like do you recognize yourself in this script like this scene or this mm -hmm. scene is it like is it still like this mm -hmm. so um, they have been very helpful I can just imagine how difficult it must have been for you to leave something that's part of your family's history and your ancestors to go and write stories and poems and separate yourself from that. Um, how long did it take for the longing to go back? Oh. <laughs> I don't know if I'm done with that. But somehow I have like... Um, what is that in English? I did that choice. My life is now these days. I'm doing good. I'm a filmmaker. My first feature <laughs> has been has had its world premiere here. So I, I try to appreciate that as well. But um, and I have somehow now during making this film found the tundra within me without the reindeer. That's wonderful. I thoroughly enjoyed 
your film because of because of the landscape, but also because of uh, Lena's story of you know, and you said it's a very personal one, and I see it in her that when you have to make a choice um, that um, connects you to the land. And, you know, in interviewing several uh, Indigenous people, the connection to the land is so strong, it's such a part of them, that I understand how she feels inside, but at the same time, the artistic calling is there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have to go and follow your path, and you, it's, you have to go and, and be different. And as you said, you've developed, and now you're here at the Toronto International Film Festival. Were you crying at the screening? Yes, I was. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I've almost forgot that I have made this film. It's yeah, because I was I got so emotional, and hearing people laughing, taking the humor, it was so nice. It was. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Who was with you at the screening? Uh, two of my uh, actors, um, the producer, DOP, and the Sami delegation, who has been really important in making this film, okay. funding this film. So they were there. So I guess we were, and fellow Sami filmmakers as well. Yeah, Tiff has three Sami films. Yeah. this year which um, I found extraordinary <laughs> it is it is really amazing so glad the two uh, older women that represent you know the the other generation Mate's mom mm -hmm. and Lena's mom where did you find them as actors oh when casting yes uh, Lena's um, mother she is a trained actress, so I've been working with her many times. Can you say her name, please? Anita Suikari. And um, uh, she is amazing. So I love this mix of using trained actors and using non-trained actors. That gives a good dynamic. And Mahte's uh, uh, mother, Karen Beritani Kemi, she's actually my eldest sister oh <laughs> and this is her second film she was acting in a short film daughter of the sun and she was just like amazing so she's the one that i have cast it first like you are gonna be mahte's mother for sure i found them fascinating just to see the two sides of uh women you know involved in the reindeer herding mm. and you know wanting the best to continue the tradition so I understand where they're coming from but at the same time Lena and Mate have to be their own people that their own person they have to be themselves as individuals and that can be hard in a society community where the traditions are strong and you work in a business or, or where the whole family is involved because what you do affects everyone so yeah and and a lot of people experience that all around the world the dilemmas city or or um 
living um, a traditional life, use of language, should you keep uh, your your mother tongue or should you just yeah how yeah how to how to balance that different words worlds yeah and then for you having to think about well the sami language was so uh, repressed you have to think about if i move away and my children will they learn will they speak sami will they be able to connect to yeah um your your family there are luckily we have like um some really strong villages where the sami is strong the language the traditions so there are ma- many families living in in cities w- uh, with children and wanting them to learn sami they decide to move back to their home village for the sake of the children and for the sake of uh, the language because it's harder to keep the language in the city because there's fewer people to speak it with yeah and also uh, the majority language is so strong mm-hmm. you hear it everywhere mm-hmm. television radio yeah where do you live i live in tromsø in a city okay And in reading some of the things that you do, you're a researcher in Sami humor. How did you start doing that? Wow. At the Theatre Academy, I started working with a red nose. And I was like, you know the clown? The clown. clown technique. I was like, oh my God, that is nothing for me. But I have to do that. But then I fall in love with that because it was so close to storytelling. You have to improvise. You have to look into the eyes of the audience and you can do whatever you want. So um, I also did, I don't know if you know the Italian director, scriptwriter, theater man, Dario Fu. Well, he's not known here, but he took the Italian storytelling to the stage and and made jester characters. So, and and I have been performing those texts, and I was thinking, what about our humor? Do we have jester characters? How do we deal with taboos? And then I started researching that and use searching humor in our stories and in Yoikat. And I found a lot of humor and then I made those characters of who they who are like criticizing the communities within with humor, talking about taboos, making people laugh and cry, because finally there was somebody me talking about taboos with humor, and it's so relieving. You, we need to look upon ourselves, look upon those things that are not so good, and become better persons, learn of our faults of, yeah, and bad things happen. But you have to work with those things and hopefully one day you can start laughing at yourself. So, yeah. So I've been here in in Toronto, the whole caboodle, acting here. I've been acting in, in the States yeah, making people laugh and cry. When are you coming back to do that? I don't know. I, now I have found a way of using humor in films, and I love that. 
it's hard to make people laugh. It's much easier to make people cry. I don't know. I I, I am an actress. I do. I am. I like being on stage as well. But now, for now, I like. I love making movies. Thank you so much for doing this interview. It's been a pleasure talking to you about the tundra within me. Thank you.